Well, good morning again. Uh, today's message is, is called Overcoming the Fear of Persecution Part 2. And so this is kind of part two of our series. And we're going to look at verses 26 to 33 of Matthew chapter 10. So Matthew 10, really 26 to 33, but the, the whole section is kind of verse 24 to the end of verse 33. But before we kind of go to Matthew, and you, you, I guess you could turn there if you wanted in your Bibles, but before we go there, <clears throat> I, want, I want you to think about the early days of the church. In the book of Acts, you know, Jesus in those early days was just tried and beaten and ultimately crucified. Jesus was killed for um, his, his commitment to the Lord, for, for proclaiming himself to be the, the Messiah. The Jews rejected him as their Messiah, their Christ, uh, their Savior. And in Acts 1 and verse 3, it says that, that he, that is Jesus, presented his, himself alive to them, that's, that's his apostles, after his suffering. And he did this, the text says, by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days. And then Jesus ascended to heaven. And the disciples waited about 10 more days, and they were praying on those days. And on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, 50 days after Jesus had died, the Holy Spirit came. And on that first day of the church, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, preached a powerful sermon, and according to Acts chapter 2, verses 40, verse 41, 3,000 people were added to the Lord on that day. 3,000 were people were baptized and added to the church. And that's really amazing, amazing results in the first sermon, but what I really want to emphasize is that only 50 days before, the Lord that these people were now trusting in was crucified. He was killed, he was executed, and now these people, these 3,000, are going to follow this Jesus. Only 50 days before, Jesus was publicly hung on a cross, and he was crucified in the very city where Peter preached his sermon. And so I want you to imagine what it would be like to come to Christ if only shortly before that Christ was killed. And I think the words, pick up your cross and follow me, would carry more weight maybe than they do today. Remember, we saw in Matthew 10, 22, just the verse or two before the section that we're looking at, Jesus said, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And I think that would just kind of ring fresh for you to, to realize, yes, You will be hated by all. They just crucified the Lord. That was just 50 days ago. That was just a few days ago. And now I'm going to follow this Lord and take my cross and live my life for him. In those days of coming to the Christ, in those early days of the church, coming to Christ meant coming to a crucified savior. It meant following Jesus, the one who was persecuted. It meant learning to become him in every way. This Jesus who was only two months before killed for being the way that he was. And those 3,000, they came to Christ by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And they came, in, in, the, in the way that we say it, they came counting the cost. 
They came to Christ ready to die for their faith in him. And the first few hundred years of church history was really very similar to that. The confession of the church was that Jesus was Lord, that he is Lord. And to call Jesus Lord meant that he was the the master of your life to the exclusion of all other masters, of all other lords. And the problem with that in the Roman world was that Caesar was Lord, according to the government, according to the law of the land. Caesar was Lord. That was his title. And sometimes Caesar was even viewed, at at different times in history, he was viewed as a a deified man, uh, as a a god or as somehow godlike. And with that view, sometimes the citizens were required to worship Caesar. You know, nothing, nothing too extreme. Just burn a little bit of incense to Caesar and then get on with your day. But they were required to worship this Lord, this deified man who ruled their country. And of course, Christians would not worship a man. They could not worship a, la- a man. Their allegiance was to Jesus Christ and to him alone. And because of this, the early Christians were persecuted. They were hated. They were killed. And again, in those days when people became Christians, they knew what they were getting into. They knew that it was going to cost them probably their lives. They were receiving Jesus as Lord and he would be their master and he would be their teacher and they would become like him as disciples of his, even unto persecution or death. And to come to Christ then under that kind of a condition meant that the people who came had to have a commitment. They would, they needed a, a confidence in the truth of the gospel. One would have to be sure that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. There was, there was a strong faith that they had that, that they would, that this Jesus was worth living for and even worth dying for. They believed that he rose from the dead and that he could save them from their sins and that they, he could save them from God's judgment. And what we're learning in Matthew chapter 10 and is that all of us, we really need that conviction. Jesus is calling us, all of us, to have that same conviction. Our mission is to reach the world with the gospel. We have good news for sinners. They can be reconciled to God. They can be made right with the holy God. But the, the bad news for us, if we want to think about it that way, is that, that the world that we are called to reach is hostile. They're enemies of God, just in the same way that we once were enemies of God. And they will not all repent, and they will not all believe the good news. And so we, like Jesus told us, are sheep among wolves. Matthew's been teaching us through the words of the Lord Jesus, who the Lord Jesus is, that he is God the Son, that he's the one who came to save his people from their sins. And he's, Matthew and Jesus have been teaching us what Jesus demands of us. And in short, that we are to turn from our sins and live our lives to glorify God. Jesus calls us to be righteous. He calls us to live God-glorifying lives. He calls us to follow Him. He calls us to take His mission as our mission. And so we need a strong commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, even unto persecution. 
And so I want to read our text with that kind of as an introduction. Look at Matthew. I want to start, though, back at, all the way back in verse 16. So we're in Matthew chapter 10, and I want to start reading all the way back at verse 16. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. In verses 16 to 23, Jesus tells us the cost of being a disciple of his and of serving him in the mission that he's sending us on. And immediately after that section, he gives us reasons not to fear the persecution that he warns us about. Persecution is a a scary thing, but we need not fear it. And last week, we saw the first reason that we need not to fear persecution. We're becoming like Christ, our teacher and our master. And if we're like him, we can handle trials and, and persecution the way that he did. Again, verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. And then if we just skip to verse 26, it's so have no fear. Therefore is literally what it is there. Therefore, because you're becoming like Christ, have no fear of them. And that's what we looked at last week. Well, well, this week we want to look at the rest of the passage from verse 26 all the way to the end of verse 33. Remember, I had called this five reasons not to fear persecution. And they all go, do not fear persecution because, 
Last week we looked at the first section, verses 24 to the first bit of verse 26, which was, do not fear persecution because you're becoming like your teacher and master. And of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we want to look at the other four reasons that Jesus gave us not to fear persecution. And we're going to start with verses 26 and 27. And so if you're taking notes, this is number two in the outline. Do not fear persecution because in the end, everything will be revealed. And so here's why we don't have to fear. One, we're becoming like Christ. Christ handled persecution. Then by his grace, we also will be handled persecution because we're like him. And then secondly, we don't need to fear because in the end, everything is going to be revealed. Look again at verse 26. It says, "For so have no fear of them. And again, therefore, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Now, the second reason not to fear here is given by the word for right after it says, so have no fear of them for. The word there, so again, is literally therefore, and it pointed backwards to the first reason not to fear them. The word for now kind of goes off the first part of verse 26, have no fear of them for, and it's going to explain again the second reason that we don't need to fear. And the reason not to fear is that ultimately everything will be revealed. And this becomes a great encouragement for us to remain faithful. And so how does this work? What, what is hidden and, and what is covered? What is covered? What is hidden? Is it the same as what Jesus uh, said in the dark? Is it what Jesus whispered into our ear? And that's literally what it's, it says there, what he said, what you, what you hear in the ear. And so we're just going to kind of try to go word by word here. Again, the first word is for, uh, or the first word after for is nothing. And it means, it means no one, nobody, nothing. And the idea here is that there's, there's no exceptions to this thing that Jesus is going to say. There is no, no thing that's covered or hidden that will not be revealed. And to reverse it, it might be kind of helpful. Everything that is hidden now is one day going to be revealed. Everything that is covered now will be revealed. Everything that is hidden now will be known. There's no exceptions. Now that word translated, and I wrote it translated hidden, it's actually translated covered. Both that word covered and the word hidden later in the verse are are very similar words. And they both just really mean to be hidden, to cover, to hide something, to conceal something. This word covered is used in 2 Corinthians 4.3 where the gospel is hidden to those who are perishing because Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And in that verse, the word hidden is translated actually veiled. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. One day, those who, who could not see the glory of Christ will see the glory of Christ. Right now, they're blind to the glory of Christ. One day, they will see his glory. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And one day those who were blind to his glory will see it and they will acknowledge it and they will bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and worship him. But for many of them, that, that will then, they will go to hell. The hidden, the covered will be revealed and it will be uncovered. And this works the other way as well. It works with sin. So, so it works with unbelievers. The, the glory that's covered to them now is one day going to be revealed. But it works the other way with, with sin in this world right now. One day, the hidden sins of all men and women will be revealed. And there will be a day of judgment for all the hidden things that aren't known right now. Ecclesiastes 12.13 says, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And then verse 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Everything that is hidden now, every secret thing is going to one day be judged, whether it was good or whether that secret thing was evil. And so here's how this works as an encouragement in times of persecution. Often with persecution comes slander, comes lies, and, and, and the persecutors kind of create spin narratives of, of, of their version of the story of what's happening and what happened. The persecutors, at least in most cases, are going to make themselves look good, right? They're going to, they're going to want to look like righteous persecutors stopping a bad thing, even though we ourselves are the righteous ones. And so they're going to spin a narrative and spin a story and, and lie and make things look bad. They're going to hide their sins and they're going to make up sins about you and about me. They're going to make their enemies look as bad as possible. And so if you just even go back to Matthew 5 and verse 10 and 11, just look at that again. Matthew 5, 10 and 11, just thinking about persecution in general, Jesus says there, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And you'll notice there that persecution includes being reviled. It includes people uttering evil against you. And it's even a false evil. There's, there's a lie that the, the persecutors are making up. That word there to, the, the word meant to find fault in a way that demeans, that word reviled, to find fault in a way that demeans. We're going to be criticized, we're going to be insulted, they're going to find faults in us, even by making them up, even if they have to lie about them, they're going to find faults and accuse us of things that aren't always true. And so persecutors are going to make you look bad. And that's not easy to take because when, when they, because, you know, this whole time in your life, you're trying to live a righteous life and build up a reputation for glorifying God and being a, a righteous person in this world. And now all of a sudden that reputation is going to be tarnished. It's going to be, um, uh, it's going to be ruined. The persecutors are going to tear that down. But here's the encouraging thing, okay? When all of this happens to us, all of this reviling and false things spoken against us, the hidden sins of the persecutors are going to be brought to light one day. 
And so will our hidden righteousness, right? Our righteousness for now might be hidden, but one day it's going to be revealed. And so even though now it may seem that the whole world believes the lies and the slanders of the wicked, one day all will be revealed. And so we don't need to fear. You don't need to worry. Just keep on going, knowing that one day everything will be revealed. And so what we need to do then to endure persecution is we need to look forward to judgment day. We have to kind of set our sights beyond what's happening now and look forward to that judgment day. Think ahead to the day when the covered things will be revealed and the hidden things will be known. And that's a great encouragement for us to continue being faithful. In fact, if you just look again at Matthew 5, um, 10, 10, 11, and 12 there. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And then verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then verse 12, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so when persecution happens, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad. And why should we rejoice and be glad? Because our reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. You will be rewarded and and we will be rewarded for every bit of slander, every reviling word that we endure for Jesus' sake, we will be rewarded for it and the reward will be great. And this is what is sometimes called um, the, the eschatological reversal. The eschatological reversal. The first will be last and the last will be first. The comfortable now will be tormented in hell later. The persecuted now will be comforted forever in heaven. There's going to be a reversal of fortunes at the end of time. And true believers who suffered for Jesus' sake will be honored and comforted in heaven forever. Whereas unbelievers will experience, well, the, the, the judgment of hell, but, but what they, what they've experienced, what they experience in this life for the unbeliever is really all the good things that they will have. And so there's going to be a reversal that happens in the end. There's, everything changes. The first are going to be last. The last are going to be first. Those who are persecuted now are going to be blessed forever. And those who had a good time now and, and lived high in this world are going to be brought low. And again, that's called the eschatological reversal. The end time, eschatos is in the Greek is, is the word for last, as in the last time, the end time. And so we don't need to fear persecutors because we know that their prosperity will be short-lived. Their triumph will not endure. And, and ultimately, we ourselves will be vindicated and the wicked will be judged. Job 20 verses 4 and 5 says, do, do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on the earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for a moment? And because we know this, because we know this reversal, we don't need to fear. But instead, look back at our text there, actually go back to Matthew 10 and look at verse 27. 
It says there, Jesus says, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And so we're to be bold and courageous and preach the word, preach the gospel, knowing that everything is going to be reversed in the end. Now, Jesus talks about what he's going to say in the dark and and what he's going to whisper literally into the ears of the disciples or into the ear, singular. As we kind of go through this gospel, we're going to see an increasing hostility against Jesus. And he is going to um, keep going. He's going to keep speaking more and more to his disciples alone in private. And he's going to start teaching by, by the time we get to Matthew 13, he's going to do a lot of his public preaching in parables that the crowds don't really understand what he's saying. And so, um, he's going to, because of this is God's plan for him, he's going to just start speaking more and more privately to his disciples. And so Jesus says, what I tell you in the dark, there's going to be a day when you say it in the light. What you heard whispered, I want you to proclaim it on the housetops. Everything in, in, in that Jesus is going to do is going to be designed in God's providence so that he dies exactly on Passover, on the exact day when the Passover lamb was slain. And that's really an amazing thing to think about, that he died on the exact day of the Passover sacrifice. But from Acts 2 onward, as we saw when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, there's, there's going to be no more speaking in the dark. There's going to be no more whispering in the ear. And we are to boldly proclaim the good news of salvation, even from the housetops. And that, that apparently was a, a place where people would make public announcements. There was a flat roof on the Israel houses. And if you went up on the housetop, you could kind of speak to the whole neighborhood And that's what Jesus is saying there. Preach it from the housetops. Preach it, in other words, preach it publicly. None of us need to get a ladder and go on top of our house. But but what the idea is, preach this publicly and let it be known. So don't fear, don't hide, boldly and publicly declare Jesus' words. And that's the second reason not to fear. And so don't fear persecution because you're becoming like your teacher and master. Secondly, don't fear persecution because in the end everything will be revealed. And then thirdly, do not fear persecution because the persecutors cannot ultimately hurt you. And that's in verse 28. He says, and do not fear. This is the second time now Jesus says, do not fear in this section. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. The word and there at the beginning of that verse connects this to as a further reason not to fear. Why should we not fear? Well, because the persecutors have a severe limitation. They, they, they can only do so much to us and, and really all they can do is kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. Now, I don't even think that needs much explanation. They can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. The soul is the immaterial part of man. It's our, it's our inner part. It's our, it's our spirit or our soul. We have a physical part, our bodies, and we have an immaterial part, our souls. And when we die, our bodies decompose in the ground, but our souls live on. And because our souls live on, we live on. The souls of believers go to heaven. 
We depart from the body and we go to be with Christ in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, Away from the body and at home with the Lord. The souls of unbelievers go to a temporary place of punishment called Hades or Hades. And until Hades then is cast into the lake of fire where we often will think of that as hell itself. But the souls of unbelievers go to a temporary place of punishment eventually to enter into hell itself. Now in another illustration or, or metaphor or picture of the eschatological reversal, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the parable of a rich man and Lazarus. And so why don't we actually just go there? Look, go to Luke 16. And we see that what happens to the soul when it leaves the body. So this is the parable, the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's, it's a very real picture of what happens when we die. So Luke sixteen nineteen. there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his source. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, or Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not, may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And so the rich man who had received his good things, all of his good things in his lifetime, he died and he went to Hades. He himself went to Hades apart from his body. And now he is in anguish in Hades. And and in Hades, he is in a flame, a, a fire of some sort, but his body is on the earth. And his soul is in Hades. And he's in Hades. His body is gone, but he remains. He is still himself, but without a body. And he can think and talk and act, but his soul is still alive and he's himself. But he is now in torment in what we often call hell. Turn to Revelation now, chapter 20. One day, I'd love to just preach through Luke 16. That's just a really great parable. But that's really all I, I want to say about it, I think, for today. So let's go to Revelation 20, and we see kind of the, what happens now to the souls of people. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, start there. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, 
small and great, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so at this great white throne judgment, this final judgment, the dead and those who are in Hades are then resurrected and cast into the lake of fire. And just to kind of see this resurrection, it doesn't explicitly say it in in those verses we read. Just look up a little bit to Revelation 20 and verse 4. And about halfway down the verse there, it says, Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and on their hands. And so here's martyrs who have died for Jesus' sake. They've, they've, they've been testifying during the tribulation. And earlier we saw them in chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, and they were there without their bodies. Their souls were in heaven. But now, look at what he says there, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so the souls of the righteous dead, the saved people, they came to life and they were resurrected. And this resurrection means that their souls and their bodies are now reunited. They were in heaven. They were separate from their bodies. Now their bodies, and really it's, it's a new body that they're given at this time. But they are resurrected. They are now both physical, soul, body, um, kind of people the way that God had originally designed. And so they're given new bodies and they're going to reign with Christ. But look at verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And so they were not resurrected yet, but they are going to be resurrected in verse 11 when they stand before the great white throne. These souls of of those who were in Hades, they were not resurrected to reign with Christ. Instead, they're resurrected after the thousand-year reign. And at that time, they're given new bodies capable of enduring the eternal destruction in the lake of fire. Now continue reading then the the end of verse 5. This is, John says, this is the first resurrection. That is, the good resurrection is the first resurrection. The second resurrection happens in verse 11. But But John says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such... The second death has no power. In other words, they're not going to go to the lake of fire. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And so the soul, and if we want to go back to Matthew 10, the soul is the immaterial part of man, the non-physical part. And the soul is the person, him or herself, apart from their body. The soul lives forever But at some point, the souls of those who die will be reunited with a body, either in heaven or in hell. And what Jesus is saying then is that that the persecutors cannot touch our soul. They cannot touch who we really are. 
They never can. And so don't fear them. That You're going to be who you are. Whatever physical things you endure, your soul is going to be just fine and you're going to dwell with God forever in heaven and you're going to be given a new body. And so instead of fear, instead then uh, Matthew says or Jesus says, we should fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now that word hell is the word Gehenna. Um, in the Greek, it, Gehenna is um, Jesus' favorite way to talk about hell. It, it, Gehenna, I would say, includes both Hades and the lake of fire. It's a place of judgment for those who are dead. It's, a, it's, a, it's known as the Valley of Topheth, uh, it's, which is, a, from the Old Testament, a place of burning. And I didn't kind of give the verses for that, but it's the Valley of Hinnom, where children were burned as offerings to the pagan god Molech. And so Jesus used this kind of illustration of the burning of the children in this valley of Hinnom, this place of burning, this this really wretched place from the Old Testament, and he used it as an illustration of what hell was going to be like. And they say that in Jesus' day, the valley was a, a trash heap full of burning garbage. And there was kind of constantly fires burning in that place. And it became, a again, a favorite metaphor of Jesus for God's judgment and the fires of hell. We're, as I heard MacArthur say once, where, and, and it's really a horrible thought, but it's, it's where the, the trash of the universe, the, the, the people that God has no further use for, his, his enemies and those who rebelled against him, he's going to put the trash of the universe who don't serve their purpose of glorifying God in this world, and they're going to, they're going to be there forever in eternal punishment. And so think about this just, just a little bit more with me. Jesus just said in verse 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end is going to experience final salvation. And Jesus is going to say in verse 32, we're going to look at that in a moment, but verse 32, look at that. It says, so everyone who acknowledges acknowledges me before men I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so if we deny Jesus Christ in the difficulty of persecution and we don't endure to the end, we won't, Jesus says, we won't experience the joy of final salvation. And if that were to happen, we would show that we were not truly saved people. And if that were the case, where would we go? Well, we, if we're not saved, we're gonna, we would go to hell. And that thought then should really put the fear of God into us. Who are we going to fear in light of eternal punishment? Are we going to fear men or are we going to fear God? God is far more powerful. God is far more capable. And God will judge us for eternity. And he asks us, God does, to follow his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be faithful to Christ and to him until the end. And so the question then for us is, are we going to listen to men or are we going to listen to God? Are we going to fear men and what they can do to us or are we going to fear God who has the power to cast both soul and body in hell. 
And if we're truly saved, we'll acknowledge our sin and we'll acknowledge that we deserved hell, right? I think every one of us who is a true believer would say, yes, when I really think about it, I recognize that I deserved hell for the wicked way that I lived but my life before I was saved. And in light of the fact that I deserved hell, what is some earthly and temporary persecution in light of that? You know, I was going to go to hell, but the Lord saved me and delivered me from God's wrath. And some earthly persecution on the way is not even worth comparing to an eternity in hell that I deserved. And so Jesus says then, don't fear men, fear God, follow Christ to the end, whatever the cost. And whatever the cost, nothing is compared. Sorry, whatever the cost, that cost is nothing compared to the cost of not following Christ and not living our lives for him. And so that's a a third reason not to fear persecution because persecutors, they, they can't ultimately hurt you. The, they can do some things to us in the, the present life, but for eternity, they can't hurt us. And so we need not be afraid of them. But then the, it kind of turns to some even more comforting news, because I don't know how comforting you felt about that one. Um, it's not the most comforting one that, that we've had so far. But number four, Jesus kind of turns the corner a little bit and gives us a little bit more encouragement in this whole thing. Number four, do not fear persecution. I called it because the sovereign God cares for you. Don't fear persecution because God cares for you. And we see this in verses 29 to 31. Now we should, as Jesus just told us, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And we should fear God. God is not to be messed with. And I I think that's a, a thing that we need to hear every once in a while. God is not a God to be messed with. But our fear of God is not ultimately or not merely just terror of him. It includes that. It includes dread of him and, and some, some fear of what he could do. But our fear of God also includes awe of him, includes reverence towards him, includes even love for him. If we kind of did a study on the fear of God, it means to love him, to, to love him so much that we turn away from evil and turn towards him. Our fear of God actually teaches us not to run away from God, but to draw near to him because he loves us. And our fear of him means that we see him as greater than everything else. And so we love him and we desire to live for him and we want to glorify him with our lives. And so Jesus says, fear him, verse 28, but know too, while you fear him, that he cares for you. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And Jesus begins with the sparrow here. And he actually uses a diminutive form, which means the little sparrows. Little sparrows. These were the smallest birds that were used for food in the ancient Near East. And they were very cheap as well. Very affordable. Two of these things for a penny, two of them for a ropper, uh, a ropper, uh, a Roman copper coin that was called an Assyrian. 
Roman copper coin, an Asserion, two for an Asserion. An Asserion was worth about a sixteenth of a denarius, and a denarius was a day's wages. So a sixteenth of a day's wages um, for the average worker. And so you could buy a whole flock of sparrows for a day's wage. You could buy 32 sparrows for a day's wage, or, or I think... If I'm, if I'm doing that right, um, for a denarius, no, I'm not going to try. I'm not even going to try math <laughs> on the fly. I didn't put it in my notes. I just got to go with it. Okay. So you get the idea. These are cheap birds, but even they are watched by our father, God. Not look at verse 29 again. And not one of them, not one of these little sparrows will fall to the ground apart from your father. Not even one. Not one of them will fall apart from your father. Now, falling most likely means the the death of these birds. They're flying and they fall. They've they've died. And they will not do that. That will not happen, although we could include them falling for whatever other reason, maybe not death. But whatever that is to fall, it's not going to happen apart from your father. Now, apart from your father is a very literal translation, but... It, it needs another word to complete the thought. Is it apart from your father's knowledge? Is it apart from your father's will? Apart from your father's consent? Is it that God knows when they will fall? Others say it's something more like permission. Not one of them will fall without your father allowing it. Not one of them will fall without your father permitting it. The Christian Standard Bible translates it this way, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. And that's the idea of this permission. Um, the NIV translates it this way, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. Many of the commentators say that the idea is most likely of your father's Will, in, in, in other words, the father, if the father wills it or not, they will, they will fall or not fall. Now the question is, I guess when we try to figure this out, is what does Jesus intend us to understand by apart from or without your father? The immediate context does seem to refer to God's knowledge because in verse 30 it talks about how even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And the idea then would be that God knows all the hairs of your head. And there's a contrast between the bird falling and the hairs of your head that are numbered. And there's a lot more hairs on your head and they're harder to count, but God knows them because they're all numbered. Every single one of them is numbered. And so knowledge fits here, but, but also we need to remember, I think, as we think about this, the context is do not fear. Do not fear persecution. Verse 31, fear not, therefore, is kind of the result of this thing. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. We're more valuable than sparrows, and, and, and this might be then where the NIV kind of finds this idea of, of God's care in the whole thing. Just to say that God knows when a sparrow die and when you lose a hair and when and how you're going to be persecuted, that, that might be some comfort, but really ultimately like 
I don't know how comforting is that. Yeah, God knows you're being flogged. Eh, that's nice, I guess. But like, if he's not doing anything about it, you you might kind of you might kind of want a little bit more. And so, I don't know that that just God's knowledge is going to deliver us from fear. It seems more to me that apart from your father is is something like will or permission. And if you think about it, if the most and I just want you to think about God's will and permission. I, I can't fully go into this, but just think about this. If the most powerful being, God, who knows everything, past, present, and future, if he permits that some, something that he could easily have stopped, it's, it really is his will to allow that thing to happen. Whatever God wills in, in this sense is what's going to ultimately happen. If God willed, the sparrow would not fall. Whether from a predator or whether from sickness or from old age or from any other cause, if God willed it, he could easily have stopped it. And if we grant that God knows everything, which scripture is very clear that he does, he even knows every single hair of your head and not just knows them, but they're numbered, like number 7,000, whatever fell out just now. Like he, he knows to that level of detail everything that's going on in the world. Then we pretty much have to grant that everything is under his control. Because if God knows something, he either allows it or he does not allow it. And if he could stop it and he doesn't stop it, then he allows it. And God can do all things with ease. And so if he doesn't stop something that he could easily have stopped, then we can say, I think just fairly that he purposed it, that he, he allowed it, he willed it to happen because he could have easily stopped it. And so what I'm trying to argue is kind of what Job says in Job 42 verse 2. I, Job says, and it's actually not Job, it's one of the other guys, but it's true. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Or Psalm 135 verses 5 and 6. I know that the Lord is great and that the Lord is above all gods with a small g. Then verse 6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does and that includes not only in heaven, but also on earth, in the sea, and really in all of his creation. God is absolutely sovereign over the events of the earth. And this doesn't mean that, that he's responsible for the evil. God never sins, but he allows evil people and evil beings to sin. And he, when he does so, he always does it for his own good and holy reasons. Isaiah 45 verse 5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other Besides me, there is no God. And then verse 6 says, There is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Light, darkness, well-being, and that word calamity there is actually just literally evil. I am the Lord, he says, who does all these things. Amos 3 verse 6 says, is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? And of course the answer is no. When the trumpet blows, the people know war is coming. Well, the next part of that, what Amos says there is, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has 
done it. And that's a really strong, active language. The Lord has done it. And of course, the answer again is no. Disaster does not come to a city unless the Lord himself has done it. Now again, God is never the chargeable cause of sin, but he is in control of all things, whether the death of a bird, the disaster coming to a city, or the persecution of one of Jesus' disciples. God is not the chargeable cause of that sin, but he is in control of that and allows it if he allows it. And so I think we can kind of take from all this if we go back to Matthew chapter 10. God knows everything. God cares for his people. And he even wills what's happening. And and when he wills it, he wills it for our good and for his glory. And so listen here, this is, this is why we do not need to fear. A good and a loving God knows exactly what we're going through. A good and loving God knows exactly what we're going through and nothing can touch us that God hasn't planned for us. He's numbered every hair on our heads. Not even a sparrow dies apart from his meticulous care of this world. And we are more valuable than many sparrows. And I think when Jesus said, you are more valuable than many sparrows, I think he probably said that with a little twinkle in his eye, a little kind of funny moment there from the Lord. Not, not, you, know, you are more valuable, all kinds of sparrows, you know, 30, 40 sparrows, no problem. You are more valuable than them. First Corinthians ten thirteen says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it. And the temptation that Paul's talking about there in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 would even include the trials of persecution. God is faithful. He's not going to let you be persecuted beyond what you're able, but he's going to give you a way of escape, a way to endure whatever he brings into your life. And so that's a a precious thought as we think about what Jesus is arguing here. The God is in control. Fear him, but but don't fear him. Fear him, but but know that he cares for you. He knows what's going on. And he's planned this even for your good. Nothing happens apart from his meticulous providence. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And the idea there is even unto persecution. It's, it's precious in the sight of the Lord. We're of more value than many sparrows and he's watching over our lives. And so brothers and sisters, God cares about you and he cares about everything that you're going through in your life right now. And you are more valuable than many to a penny sparrow. And so he is, he is, he cares for you. You're made in his image and he is going to watch over your life. And so don't fear because God and Christ will help you in persecution or in whatever else is happening in your life. And so then number five, do not fear because do not fear persecution. Number five, Because if you acknowledge Christ now, he will acknowledge you before the Father at the judgment. And this is in verses 32 and 33. Look at verse 32 again if you're there. 
So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Acknowledging Christ here means to confess him in the face of persecution. It means to remain faithful to his cause and to not back down when we're facing all kinds of evil things falsely accused against us. It means to endure to the end, like we see in verse 22 of this chapter. It it means to acknowledge him as Lord before a hostile world. We acknowledge him, as the text says, before men. And we tell people who Jesus is, and we tell them about the salvation that's in him, and how this Christ will return. And they may hate us, and they may arrest us, and even kill us, but we must never deny the Lord Jesus Christ. We acknowledge him by speaking his truth and by living lives like him. We must not be like those described in Titus 1.16 where it says they profess to know God. And that's the same word as we have in our text. They acknowledge themselves to be knowers of God. They confess to know God. But they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let me read that again. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. We must not be like that. If we confess Christ on earth now before men, what the Lord says to us is that he will confess us to his father. And Christ's confession of us to his father will occur at the judgment seat of Christ where we will be rewarded for our service to him. And this shows us once again that Jesus is no mere man. Before God the Father, the Father in heaven, according to Jesus, in the final analysis, what really matters is going to be what Jesus says about us. Can you imagine? Nobody could say that. You know, whatever Jesus says about us, that's really what matters. If he confesses us, then we are saved. And if he denies us, then we are damned. And so what a glorious thought here as, as we confess Christ in this hostile world, he will one day confess us to the Father. And if he acknowledges us, it will mean that he has paid for our sins. It will mean that he has clothed, clothed us in his righteousness. It will mean eternal fellowship with God and Christ. And so I want you to just think about that. Whatever we have to endure in this world, just imagine one day the Lord Jesus Christ saying, this fellow confessed my name. This fellow lived for my glory. He honored me in this world. He was persecuted for righteousness sake. He endured for my sake. And Father, I now confess him to you as one of mine. It's a great thing to think about on that final day. But we also need to consider the other side of this. If we deny him, He will deny us. Whoever denies Christ, he also will deny before his Father. If we do not persevere, we will not experience final salvation according to Jesus. Now, I won't be able to go super deep into this right now, but I I, I just want to kind of talk a little bit about this. I understand salvation to be a work of God from beginning to end. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together to save sinful and rebellious men and women. 
God the Father chose certain people, Scripture tells us, before the foundation of the world. And the Son died to make atonement, to pay for their sins for that same group of people. And the Holy Spirit regenerates them so that they will repent and believe and He sanctifies them so that they will not ultimately or finally fall away. And those that the Father gives to Christ will never perish. Jesus said in Matthew 10.27, He says, My sheep hear My voice. I know them and they follow Me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And what this means is that true believers will continue in the faith. True believers will continue to follow Jesus all the days of their lives. And even if they fall into sin for a time, they will, they will come back to following Jesus. Nobody will snatch them out of Jesus' hand and nobody will snatch them out of the Father's hand. And Jesus says, this group of people that the Father has given Him that know His voice and follow Him, He says they will never perish. And so if we go astray as true believers, the Lord will bring us back. And if we, like Peter, deny Christ, Christ will bring us back. But if we, like Judas, deny Christ to the end, then He will deny us. And I just want you to look back at the text again if you're still there. Matthew um, 10, 32, and 33. It says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father, and then, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father. Now there's, there's two categories of people here. Everyone who acknowledges and everyone who denies. Whoever denies. And so there's these groups of people, and this is describing the, the characteristic trait of their life. We are either people who, by characteristic trait, acknowledge Christ in our lives before men, by preaching the gospel, by proclaiming the gospel, by standing for Christ in this world, or we are one who as a general habitual characteristic of our life, denies Christ before men. Jesus isn't talking here about a, a temporary slip up or a, a, you know, a moment of, of cowardice like Peter had where he denied Christ, but he's speaking about our entire lives. And if we are people who acknowledge him, then he will also acknowledge us. And so there's a warning here and there's an encouragement here. Honestly, there's an encouragement it's a warning just to beware of falling away. Beware of, of taking sin lightly. Beware of being a person who doesn't worship Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because those are the people who will fall away and won't be able to endure. Beware of a, a, a shallow commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ that's not ready to, to give up even your body for Him knowing that He will one day confess you and that your soul will be okay. But there's also an encouragement here for us as believers in Christ that He will empower us to acknowledge Him before men. If we are saved people, then we will persevere to the end. Then we will acknowledge Him to the end and He will give us the strength to endure whatever persecution comes in this world. 
And so we need not fear persecution. Don't be afraid of persecution. Don't be anxious about it. It's only a short time. Remember the eschatological reversal. Remember that that everything is going to be changed. We might go through some tough times now on the earth, but we will spend forever with the Lord in heaven. You know, I started talking at the beginning about the early church and the commitment that they needed. And honestly, brothers and sisters, we need that same commitment. We need to know that we are going to live for Christ no matter what. That's what it really means to be a Christian. We are following Christ all the way to the end. He demands our life, our soul, everything about us. But by his power, we can worship him and live that way for him. We can be faithful to his mission and we need not fear persecution for the reasons that I gave. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time together in your word. And we thank you, Father, that, that, that you teach us not to fear I think if we were honest, many of us would acknowledge, even in this moment, that even though we've heard these words, that we still are afraid of what they might do to our bodies. But Father, we pray that you would give us the resolve and the love for Christ and the love for you. That you would give us the lives of true believers, which you have given us if we're born again. And so we just thank you, Father, that you promise that we will be able to endure And we pray that you would give us boldness to proclaim Christ to this hostile world, that we would believe and therefore speak. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.